Um, it's great to be back with you this week. Um, what an incredible day outside. Uh, but this morning, I pray that uh, we would just get to encounter God through his word and that he would teach us his ways, that he would draw us into his very heart, that we would feel loved, we would feel compelled um, by who he is. And so last week, we looked at the upside down kingdom, um, how the, the way of God and his kingdom is totally contrary to our flesh and it's totally contrary to the ways of the world. And it's upside down. Everything that Jesus did when he lived um, in this world was contrary to the way of culture. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you had the Romans building their empires and you had the religious Jews wanting to go and uh, and, and conquer them so that they could have their land back and all these things. And he's like, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in this. I'm bringing a new kingdom. I'm bringing a new way. I'm not bringing a new religion. I'm bringing a way because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm bringing a new kingdom that will have no end, where there will be no pain, no, no sorrow, no hurt, no sin. I'm bringing a kingdom that brings justice and goodness and love and forgiveness to the world. It's upside down. And last week we looked at Luke 14. We looked at Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath and how the religious leaders didn't like that. And then we looked at um, Jesus teaching that don't look for the places of honor, but let the, the, the host lift you up. Don't lift yourselves up. And, um, and then we looked at the last story about who do we invite to a feast? Not our friends, not our family, not the rich, because they can repay us, but invite the poor, the broken, the hurting the outcast, so that they cannot repay you for anything because you will receive your reward on that day. And so the two points we looked at is that religion and self-righteousness lead to blind elitism. We fail to see. We lift ourselves up, and we want to hang out with people um, who are high. But, he said, but ultimately, the second point was the way of Jesus leads to a humble seeing a humble seeing of others, of the broken, the hurting. And um, I pray that as you continue as a church, and I know y'all been in transition, and thank God for your elders, I, I encourage you to pray for them uh, as they lead this body in the midst of a time of um, maybe it's uncertainty. I would just say it's refining. Uh, but pray for them, and thank you for your leadership uh, here. But I pray that your church would continue to, to grow um, into the knowledge of God and to his mission, which is to go and love the hurting in the world. And I pray that this place on this corner, I guess it's kind of a corner, uh, next to a school with all kinds of hurting and a community with all kinds of hurting, would this be a place that they're welcome? And so today we're going to be looking at the second part of the upside-down kingdom, and I'm going to move this, so I hope I don't, because um, I'll knock it off. Uh, the second part, we're going to be looking at Luke 15 this morning, and we're going to be looking at... Um, in the upside-down kingdom, or the kingdom of God, what does celebration and joy in that kingdom look like? What excites this kingdom? Think about in your own life, there's certain things that excite you. Um, you know, in my world of athletics, you, you, you know, you win, you get excited, right? It's amazing. The quietest people in the world who, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm pretty reserved. If, they're, if they have a team or a player or something that they're excited about, it's like, whoa, who is that person? You know, it's like, wow, I wish you'd get more excited about other things in your life, but just, I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, you know, it's like, it's amazing, uh, but you get excited 
You know, maybe it's the new job, or maybe it's the, the new friendship, or maybe it's the new house, or I mean, maybe it's a vacation, right? We get excited about things, but, but we need to know if we're going to be a part of this kingdom, what excites the heart of God more than anything else? Like, doesn't that matter? More than anything else, what excites his heart? What does all of heaven rejoice more over, and what brings joy most to the heart of God? And the prayer as we look at Luke 15 today is that we would have a heart like his. That we want to be a part of those parties. Yeah, I said parties. We need to party a little bit more as believers. But party in the right way. To party about the right things. We should be the most festive, celebratory people in the world because we actually celebrate things that last if we celebrate the things of God. And so this morning, as we look at this, we're going to look at three parables. You're going, whoa, how are we going to do that? We'll figure it out, all right, that he taught in response to Luke 15, 1 and 2. So let's read first. What's the problem here? What's Jesus addressing in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, religious leaders, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Here's the problem. Jesus' life was attractive to sinners. Or in their culture, his life was attractive to the ones who they had even cast outside of the city. They said, hey, yeah, you've got something going on with you and your life, or uh, you've made mistakes outside the gates. He comes, and his life attracts the people that they have repelled. And they had a problem with it. Because they didn't understand the ways of his kingdom. His kingdom was not for the healthy. He said that before, right? But it's for the hurting. You don't take the healthy to a doctor. You take the sick. And he came and he said, my kingdom will not be of the elite. Matter of fact, and we should hear these words, he railed against the the elite. He did throughout his ministry. And I pray that this morning that we would take on the heart of God because I I do believe at times we have treated the lost, hurting, broken world the way that Jesus treated uh, treated the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And we have treated the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the religious among us, like he treated the hurting. And my prayer is that we would have a heart like his and that we would at the end of this day be known as a people that are attractive to the hurting in the world and the sinful. Does that make sense? Let's pray real quick and then we'll dive into this. Father, thank you for that time of worship. I can't get over it. I can't get over who you are and what you've done in my life. I am so undeserving of you. Yet you have called me your own. You have been so kind and so gracious to me far beyond what I could ever dream or imagine or definitely deserve. And I know that people here with me can share in that. Would you teach us your word? Um, Would it be um, searching in our heart? Would you search our heart? Would you reveal um, who we are um, so that you can make us more like yourself? We need you this morning. And we thank you so much. 
of Christ. And we pray that he, above all, would be lifted up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Three points. We're going to look at the heart of God, the heart of the self-righteous or the older brother, um, and the last celebration and joy in the kingdom. First story, verse 3 through 7. So in response to the religious leaders having a problem with, with him eating and hanging out with sinners, this is what he said. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, you got to check it out. They're saying, oh, you're hanging out with sinners. Like, what's the issue here? They're grumbling amongst each other. We call that gossip, slander. Uh, and he immediately begins to teach. Jesus was incredible at teaching in a way that said, yes, I'm talking to you, but he never said I'm talking to you. It's incredible how he does this. You ever read the Bible and felt like, is he he's not talking to me right now, but I think he's talking to me? Or, uh, or you've been in church before, and he's like, he's talking to me. Is he like, did, did somebody tell him something before he walked in? You ever, you ever been there before? Like, I've been there a lot in my life. And, uh, and so this is what's happening. So the first thing we see is there's this, there's this, this lamb or this sheep that's lost. He's got, he's got 100. 99 are cool. They're, out and they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do, but you got the one that runs off, right? Uh, in our culture, we call that the black sheep or whatever, you know. I mean, like, no, he's probably still white, but he just, you know, just chose to go his own way like we all have, right? And so you got this sheep, and he, he's gone. And he says, which of you, if, he, if this lamb was gone, wouldn't go after it? And then when you find it, what do you do? You think about it. If you've been lost, anybody ever been lost before? Anybody before? Like, has anybody been, like, really lost? Like, not just in a car, like, oh, where am I going? And you're mad, but, like, you've been really, really lost, and you're like, I have no idea how to get out of here. I mean, Imagine this. What, what, what are some things you feel? You're probably tired. You're frustrated. You're discouraged. You're weary. Maybe afraid, depending on what kind of loss you felt. Didn't know which way to go. And all of a sudden, imagine the heart of God. Think about the heart of God right now. What does he do? He doesn't go, well, sorry, you left. I got the 99. can't worry about you. What does he do? He relentlessly pursues and searches for him. And so what does he say? The, the shepherd comes, and when he finds the lamb, it's not like, ah, you know, like, what are you doing? Right, what we do with kids sometimes. You ever done it before? No, you're all innocent. Right, like, why did you? Uh, what does he do? He's like, man, I found what I was looking for. And what does he do? He takes the lamb and puts it around its neck and carries it back. Now, some people have taught that he broke the leg, that they would break the leg and then hold it. I don't think that's a true story. The more, But he would just take the lamb and put it on its neck. Tired, weary, probably hungry, maybe thirsty. Maybe he feels abandoned, feels by itself. He says, I'm going I'm to hold you near. And he carries it back. And when he carries it back, what happens? He calls everybody together. 
guess what? I found the one. And they begin to celebrate and rejoice. See a picture into the heart of God? Let's read the next story and look at the heart of God. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You ever been there before? You ever lost something? And you look everywhere, probably, oh, I took my keys out of my pocket. You ever lost your keys? Oh, where's it at? You're sweeping everything, and they're usually like right in front of your face or, or nowhere where you're looking. Uh, they have a, I think keys have the gift of moving. Uh, but imagine, right? I mean, you can imagine the woman's, and she's lost her coin. And, and maybe this silver coin is how they're going to provide for their family. And um uh, it's obviously a big deal, and so what happens? She begins to sweep. She lights the lamp, so it's dark, okay? Uh, so it's dark. It's night. She should probably be sleeping. Instead, she's like, i got to find this thing. Turns the lamp on. Then what does it say? She, she sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds it. It's this relentless pursuit because she's got to find it. But when she's found it, what does she do? She calls together her friends and neighbors. I mean, it was obviously a big deal. And it's nighttime. Anybody want to be woke up from somebody finding a coin in their house? Right? It's probably a little bit bigger than that. I'm going to be able to provide for my family. I'm going to be able to pay the rent. I'm going to, like, I got to tell everybody. I think we forget to celebrate what God does a lot of times, and, or we do it by ourselves. What, what do we see this picture of? Is that there's a celebration of people coming together saying, this was lost, now it's found. Rejoice. And then we see the next parable of the lost son. And I want, we're going to dig into this one just a little bit and begin to look at what is the process of redemption. And what my hope is in this time is that we would see an incredible God um, who really does pursue us. You notice he starts with the sheep. Everybody gets it. He starts with a, a coin, and then now he digs in. Let's read this together, and let's unpack what the heart of God is like. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Anybody here have two sons? Anybody can relate to this? You got the older brother and the younger brother. Don't, don't talk about it. You're going to upset one of your kids. Two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. All right, so we're going to look at these seven R's of redemption, all right? The first one is renounce, okay? In verse 11 and 12, you see what? All right, you just got to picture this. Follow me. You're still alive, and the youngest son says, I'm ready for my inheritance. I really don't want to get out of here. 
Excuse me? When do inheritances usually come? When someone's dead. So what has the younger son said? Picture this. Those of you who are parents. Dad, you're better off dead. I hate this family. I'm better off without you. I'm going to do it my own way. I've had enough. Give me what's mine. I'm out of here. I got two kids. I can't even imagine. That's where the start, this is where the story begins. He renounced his family and he took off. Verse 13. So not many days later, he, the younger son, gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had, so that means the father gave it to him. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Makes a choice, takes off, but then his life becomes ruined. It's the second R, ruined. He renounced the family, gets what he wanted, goes, lives his life the way that he wants to live it, and he ruins his life. He went from having all this stuff, evidently there was enough that he could go and live well, but then some things took place in the, in the country he was in, and all of a sudden he's hired himself out to tend to pigs. Anybody ever had, anybody ever been near pigs? Yeah, some of you probably have pigs. I mean, that's not, they are nasty. I mean, honestly, there's just another way. To, you, I mean, chicken houses smell bad, but you get around a pig farm, you can smell it like all over Whatcom County, right? I mean, if the wind's blowing your way, I mean, it's like, no, it's not them spreading the manure right now. It's somebody's pig farm, right? I mean, it's terrible. He went from being in a family, getting his inheritance, going and living in wild, elite, reckless living, and now he's having to tend to pigs. He couldn't even eat. Nobody would even give him any food. You've got to understand, he asked for the life in which, he was, in which he had, but his life was broken deeply. He had ruined his life. But let's read verse 17 through 19 and see this, the plot begin to change. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The third R is repentance. He knew he had wrecked his own life. He didn't come back and want to blame anybody else for his stuff. Well, you know, it was your fault I left in the first place. Or you don't hear that in his language. We're pretty good at blaming people. Even when we wreck our own lives or make really poor decisions, we love to point the finger at somebody else. But that's not what's happening here. He's come to the end of himself. He realizes he made a bad choice and he chased his own way and it left him ruined. And now he's come to a place of repentance. And the place he rebelled from became his only hope. 
So in verse 20, the beginning part, it says, And he arose and came to his father. Fourth R, he returned. He arose and he came to his father. I want you to imagine the setting. The last interaction dad and son had had is, you're better off dead. I hate this family. I'm out. I want to go live my life without you. Imagine the way the father felt in that moment. The son and his pride and arrogance and his sin took off. But now he's come back humbled. And they're about to meet again. As the son, you've got to believe he's waiting on the wrath. He's going, the best shot I got is to be the hired servant. Because I know what I did to my dad. And this is when we begin to see the heart of God. The rest of 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Imagine the scene. He's... The son has been gone. We don't know how long, but you can just picture the old man going every day looking. I hope he comes back. I don't know where he went. I hope he comes back. I hope he comes back. And he sees him in a long way off. And he's not like, oh, he's coming back. I knew that the stupid kid would do what he did. It's not what you hear. Or, yeah, come back and beg now. It's never what you hear. It says he felt compassion. Wait a minute. He wrecked his own life. He made his bed, and he needs to do what? Lie in it. You're, have you ever said that? Repent. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, right? <laughs> right? You made that choice in your life. Now you've got to deal with it. I'm not here anymore. You don't hear that. You hear what? I have compassion. The upside-down kingdom, right? Never expect it to be that way. And what did he do? He ran. He didn't say, well, he's got to come to me. He ran after him. And what did he do? He embraced him and he kissed him. My son's back. I don't care what you did. It doesn't matter what you did the last months, years. You're back. And the heart of this father is I'm going to chase after you. I'm going to have compassion upon you. I'm going to embrace you, and I'm going to kiss you. It's incredible. Then in 22, excuse me, in 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He comes broken. He comes humbled. He's already probably like, whoa, this is weird. You ever been in a situation where you knew you deserved a certain reaction, you got something different? Like, you ever, you ever gone into a situation where you thought it was going to be antagonistic? And, and so you go in and you're like, you've already got your defense ready. I mean, you, all of a sudden, we all have been trained in law at that point. We've got all of our arguments down. We're ready to go. And we're going in for a fight. And, then that, and they don't want to fight. But they just forgive and they love. It disarms you. This is where this son is at. And then what do we see in 20 and 21? We see the fifth or we see reconciliation. He's embraced him. He's kissed him. He's cared for him. He's reconciled the relationship. 
Who reconciled the relationship in the story? The father did. He had the ability and the power to bring reconciliation alone. And that was his choice. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The sixth R we see is restoration. He doesn't just say, hey, come, I love you, I forgive you. But yes, you're going to go work as a hired servant. He says, no, 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 no. Here's the best robe. Here's the ring, the signet ring. This is the family ring. What has he done? He's made him a son. He has restored relationship. And then what happens? 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Go get the best. We're about to party because he's back. It doesn't matter what he did. It doesn't matter that he chose that life for himself. He is back, and we will bring reconciliation, restoration to my son's life, and we will party that he's back. Is that the God that you encounter? I think a lot of people think God's always mad, never satisfied with who you are, and you're never enough. Guess what? You're not. That's, that's the point. Because God is the father in the story. And we are the people that chose our own way. And we've wrecked it. And yet he comes to us with compassion. And he sends his son to lay down his life for us. And he restores us as we repent and return to him. And he gives us this reconciled relationship with him. And we learned, and we'll get to this in a minute, all of heaven rejoices more over that. The heart of God always engages sin contrary to what we expect. He doesn't overlook it. He pays for it and says, come and be restored. But God and his compassion and his grace will let us go to ruin. You ever experienced that? <laughs> so that we will repent and return to him. Because he knows there we will find what we always look for. Do you think that son was pretty happy being a part of that family at that point? Think he wanted his, you, think he, you think he wanted his inheritance again before his dad was gone? No, nah, I don't think so. Why? Because he'd experienced a love like he'd never experienced in his life. But there's a warning here. And the second point is the heart of the self-righteous or the older brother. We see the heart of God. I believe in verse 25 through 32, he's talking directly to the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's read this. Now, this, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music Thank you. Uh, and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. I mean, he comes in. He's like, what in the world is going on here? There is a party and I'm missing out. And he, 
And he called one of the servants over and he asked him. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in because his father came out and uh, his his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he's not his brother anymore. This son of yours came um, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the older brother has been the good guy, right? He, so how does he respond to the returning of his brother? Well, he disowns him, number one. That's your son, not my brother. He's anger. He has anger. He has resentment. He's built his whole life based on his works. I've always done what you've asked me to do. I've always obeyed. He focused on what he, haven't been get, what he had not been given, right? You haven't even given me a goat to go celebrate with my friends. He condemned the brother. He had no forgiveness, no compassion. And I think the warning is to us that we need to be really, really careful as people who call ourselves by the name of Jesus, that we trust in his grace and his forgiveness, that we do not take on this throne of judgment and condemnation. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but to do what? Save it. And yet I think sometimes as the the body of Christ, and I will stand here and say myself as well, we are known as people of judgment and condemnation of the brokenness and the hurting of the world, and it is ungodly. It is so far from the heart of God. I'll tell you a quick story, and I know I need to wrap up because it's terrible weather outside, and I know y'all want to be in here for a long time. Um, <laughs> but Janelle and I, my wife, we went to Hawaii for a baby moon. I didn't even know these things existed, but evidently it's a trip you go on before you have your first baby. I don't know. Us younger people, we make up more things. That's just an excuse to go on a vacation. Uh, but we went on it, and... We went to Hawaii, right? There's no way you can have a bad time in Hawaii, but we were uh, pretty newly married. Uh, two months into marriage, we were pregnant, so we just decided, let's just figure out how to be married, how to have a kid all at once, and uh, real wisdom for you young people. Um, uh, we go on this trip, and it was like, we're in the most, one of the most beautiful places in the world, and we just we can't get along. She's pregnant, um, which makes her really, really nice all the time. Um, <laughs> And I am a new husband who is incredibly understanding, like all men are. Um, (laughs) Kidding. We're on this trip, and I really feel like we spent more of that trip apart than together. But God knew what he was doing. You ever felt that before? He ruined something in your life to do something in your life? I took a book with me by a pastor out of New York City who's been very influential in my life, Tim Keller, a book called Galatians for You. And basically, it is a study for the book of Galatians. Well, 
Me and the wife aren't doing real well at that moment. I got nothing but time in a balcony and a beautiful ocean in front of me. Did a lot of reading. And it was, looking back, some of the most beautiful days, but those days were some of the most difficult, hard days. And it had nothing to do with Janelle and I not being together. It had to do with what God did by studying the book of Galatians was taught me that I was the older brother. That I had based so much of my life on my own righteousness. I was so judgmental of other people. Compassion was far at times for my life. And he began to reveal it felt like every sin I'd ever committed, and I got flooded with it, and it, about, it, about, it felt like it was going to kill me. Why did he do that? Because he knows the greatest thing I can do is give up my own performance and to rest in Jesus and to quit lying to myself about how good that I am and come to grips with who I'm not so that I can actually receive his love. I feel like until that moment, I, I sang differently before that about Jesus because I kind of appreciated him. I talked about him kind of excitedly because I kind of appreciated what he had done for me. But after that trip, he did a work in my heart that, that wrecked me and showed me how much I really needed him, and my praise has been a little different since then. My talking about him is a little different. My compassion meter has gone up a little bit. Depends what day. But God in our lives must reveal, especially for those of us who are in the church or growing up in the church, our tendency is toward the self-righteous way, the older brother. So what does celebration of the joy in the kingdom look like? This is the last point. Verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 14. Excuse me, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly uh, the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. What is celebration and joy in the kingdom about? It's about the lost being found. He said there will be joy in there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Imagine the throne. If you've ever read anything in Revelation, you get these pictures. They're like, what in the world is going on up there? But just imagine when the lost is found, what the celebration must be like. And then it said in 10, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy before the angels. Like, like heaven, heaven goes crazy over this. This is the mission of God is to redeem the world and the lost will be found. And, and yes, they've wrecked their lives. So did you. Like we all have. And they're coming home home. They're coming back to the creator, the one who called them. And there is a party going on about this. Like heaven gets loud over this. 
There is no whispering in those moments. There is only shouting. There is, yes, I am redeeming the world. My mission is coming to fruition, and Jesus is on his throne and being praised as the sacrificial lamb and the conquering lion in those moments. And heaven goes nuts over it. That is what excites the heart of God. And so in closing, what would it look like? I think there's probably two camps in here right now, maybe three. But what would it look like to encounter the heart of God? To receive the opposite of what you would expect. To feel sought after, pursued, loved, and cared for in your need and brokenness. Maybe you've lived a life indulging in self and sin, and you need to repent and return to your creator where you will receive reconciliation and restoration. You will find one like the father in the story of the lost son, full of compassion. You don't have, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to hide, which is a, a great thing that happens inside buildings like this. We hide. You don't have to hide. He knows. And you don't have anything to prove to anybody in this room or out in the community. So maybe you need to come because your life's been ruined. You just need to repent and return. And I promise you, you'll find a God of compassion. Promise it. Or maybe this is your story. What would it look like if we had the heart of God? Would a different crowd come around? Would our life actually be attractive to sinners? Would we be free from more of our anger, resentment, jealousy, judgment, bitterness, pride, etc., that all grows in the self-righteous state? Maybe you've been the self-righteous older brother and you need to be ruined before God and repent. There you will find reconciliation and restoration. It's what your heart needs. We all must humbly come to Jesus And when we do, we will find the heart of God, a heart full of love, compassion, and forgiveness, no matter where we are in the story. We will love the things and people he loves, and we will get to join the host of heavens in eternal celebration and joy. Let the celebration begin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. I praise you for your word. And I praise you that you are not a God that only loves people who've got it all together and have fixed themselves. I thank you that you are a God who has given us what we asked for in the beginning. And we've wrecked our lives with it. We made our bed and we've been lying in it. Yet you do not say that that means we have to stay there. Meet us no matter where we are. Maybe we've wrecked our lives and wild living, or maybe it's not even, doesn't even feel like wild living, but just selfish living. And we need to come to you. I pray that you would prompt us to do so. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to wallow in our shame and guilt, the bed that we've made, but we can repent. And we can know that as we return to you, we will find reconciliation. You will make it right. Or maybe in the room, we have been the older brother, and we wrestle to even confess that right now because our pride is so great. Forgive us, but draw us to your heart that we would not be a people that boast in our strengths, but would this be a people that boast in their weaknesses because we want your power to be made perfect in them. 
In Jesus' name, amen.